Now you can do a prayer meeting differently than we just did. It's just you have to organize things a little bit for the whole group if we're going to do many, several different things in the time we've allotted. You could have several people pray. Um, you could have people give requests and then have some people pray for these requests and some people pray for others. There's a lot of ways to arrange it. And um, we have uh, several ways we use on Wednesday nights at 7. We get together, uh, sorry, 6. 6 is prayer, 7 is the Bible study time. And um, we would love to welcome you to come pray together with us. It's, a, um, it's an elite battalion of prayer warriors at 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Uh, you know who you are. Um, so um, I want to finish talking about what we've been discussing Wednesday nights and, well, part of what the Wednesday night thing, but the last several weeks we've talked about uh, the Christian priesthood. I mentioned it a few moments ago. The believer's priesthood, a major emphasis in the Reformation by Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, especially by Luther, and uh, a teaching in the New Testament that is um, not as emphatic as perhaps the Reformers might have presented it. But I think it's an important doctrine um, to understand the Christian spiritual life. And there are a couple places that you find it. You find it in 1 Peter chapter 2, Hebrews chapters really 7 through 10, and then Romans 12 emphasizes uh, this as well. And um, if you would turn with me, please, to Hebrews 10, Hebrews chapter 10 in the Bible, um, I will review a little bit with you about what this looks like on the basis of the priesthood of Jesus Christ in the new order. Hebrews chapter 10. In verses 19 through 25, you have this really tight discussion, this really tight argument, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, of sort of all the aspects that you could consider yourself a priest, how this looks and works. The, the first doctrine of the believer's priesthood is the doctrine of Christ, who he is. It's really about Jesus. Everything about us is about Jesus. In fact, um, we like non-denom, we like to be non-denominational because we think that uh, the brand is Christ. We're Christian. We're, we're just of him. And so we want to know more of him, focus more on him. And this doctrine, like everything else, is focused on him. So in in, in the beginning of this discussion of, of the summary of the priesthood of the believer, you have the basis of the ministry in verses 19 through 21. The basis of the ministry is Jesus entering into the Holy of Holies in heaven, the, the most holy place in heaven. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, which is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God. See, that's the beginning. It's about Jesus. Who is he and what has he done? Theologians have um, argued since before they were writing in English that the three offices of Jesus are well established in the scriptures. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 of a, pre, of a, of a prophet who would come like him, but more than him. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this as the prophet, the one who reveals the word of God. In fact, he's identified by John as the word, the, the revelation of God to man. He's the prophet. Here in Hebrews, he's the priest. He's the new 
priesthood because there's a new sacrifice and there's coming a new covenant that God is cutting with Israel and Judah. And so he is the high priest in a new order, the order of Melchizedek. And that's the argument through really chapter 7 through 9 of Hebrews. And then he is also, of course, the king. Behold, the king. This is the message of John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. What he's saying is that the king is present and therefore if he's here, then the kingdom is being offered. This is the gospel of the kingdom in the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and it was rejected by the nation to which it was offered but Jesus is still the promised chosen one, the Messiah, the king prophesied uh, from God through Nathan to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophecy was that there would be a, a, a king on David's throne, his own son, a, a, a descendant directly from him who would sit on this throne forever, a kingdom that would be established forever with a forever king. And that's a hard one. How do you have a forever king? And that's, you've got the forever one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've just said he's the prophet, priest, and king in the ultimate sense of all those three things, the three offices, we say, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we're emphasizing the priesthood of Jesus. This is who we're talking about. Died for our sins on the cross and then rose from the dead. Why? To give us eternal life. Died to pay for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life so that you would enjoy life with God. And this revelation is why he's called the Word the revelation of God. And so because of this priesthood that Jesus has, we in him are part of this order. That's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Now there are three different aspects that the writer of Hebrews brings out that you are a priest, three different senses where you have an approach or a responsibility. The first is always to what? Who is your first responsibility? The great commandment is to love the Lord your God. It's always God first. Out of the Ten Commandments God gave Israel in Exodus 20, the first four are only about how the individual would re- relate to God. But what are the last six? How the individual, for God's sake, would relate to? Each other, to man. Because God cares about how we treat one another. And so it's not just about God. I, I really like the first four commandments, but those other six, I don't like them. I don't want to deal with people. They're a mess. They're, they're a problem. They're a distraction. Yeah, we know. Welcome to my world, your world. We all live in the same world. But, but the point is that God, in serving him, will then tell you how you treat one another. And if you get it wrong with us, then who's upset with us? God's not pleased. See, if I get it wrong in how I treat you, that's something that's gone wrong in my worship of him. Now, what, what's, the, what's the risk that I turn it into me and you only. Well, I don't know about God, but I'm going to treat man properly. And that's called idolatry. That's when you give to man what God alone should get. I'm not worshiping you. I'm worshiping God and how I treat you. See what I mean? And so having a priesthood in Christ, we then have an approach to God in verses, uh, verse 22, and then an approach to the world, our fellow man in verse 23, an approach to the world. And then um, one another in the church family, in the body of Christ in verses 24 and 25. That's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Again, we have a priesthood through Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 21. 
In verse 22, we have our approach to God because of this priesthood. In verse 23, we have our approach to the world, the unbelieving world. And in verses 24 and 25, we have our approach to one another. So the priesthood is really your Christian spiritual life. I'm in Christ. I have responsibilities to him and to others. And that, that's the way it works. Now, there's something else we need to talk about when we say a priest. Now, in, in the time in which this is written, the people that first read the book of Hebrews, the, the recipients, they're Israelites. Do you know what they think about priests? One word describes their opinion of the priests as it's supposed to be, as they've read Exodus, they've read Leviticus, they're, they're believers in the scriptures God has given them. And then they think about the Kohen, the priest, the Kohenim, the, this, this group, this specially set-apart group. What do they think about these people? Well, they, they have reverence toward them because they're what? See, this is family Bible hour. You can actually talk to me and interact. What are these priests? I'm sorry? They're set apart. Now, now we're speaking English. Can somebody give me some King James language? If you're set apart, you're holy. That's what, that's what holy means, by the way. Did you know that as you sit here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're holy? See, I, I just snuck you into the holiness movement. Now you're all holy. <laughs> Rollers. We don't have really a good setup for that. I've been talking about moving the chairs, getting some more comfortable seating. See, there's no room to... to the holy roll. <laughs> we'll do it anyway. We'll ball up and do it in the fetal position. <laughs> now, holy means set apart. And that's what God did. He, he took the one tribe of, of the, the Levites, the, the children of Jacob. One of them was named Levi. Um, and, uh, and Levi was set apart as the tribe that would only conduct the priesthood and nobody else you couldn't be a, a, from Judah or Asher or Gad or Zebulun these other tribes you couldn't be a priest you could only come out of Levi and then within Levi there are different responsibilities and the, the children of Aaron his descendants would be the, the the high priests the priests that would offer the sacrifices but um when God gave Israel their inheritance in Canaan he gave every tribe a chunk of land except Levi do you know why? Every tribe. The priest was supposed to be taken care of by the other tribes. Yeah, the priest would receive their uh, living from the offerings to God. That's right. So there's a, they don't need land to farm because they're busy doing God's work in the specific ministry of the priesthood. Okay, what else? Why else are they not given an inheritance in the land? There's a specific thing God says is beautiful. You know this one? It's awesome. Who said it? You said it first, right? So, all right. Because he said, I will be an inheritance to you. You get me. Well, okay, yeah. I'll trade parcels of land for you, God, for you to be my inheritance, for you to be my, my, the, the gift that I get for the relationship as your children. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. Mediterranean to the Euphrates. Duh. I mean, we just read the Bible, right? It says from, from the river in Egypt to the river, the river Euphrates, and that's the northern end of the, that's the whole swath of land. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, but the point I'm making is that the Levites didn't get um, an inheritance of land because they got, they had a, a special 
intimacy with God, a special relationship where they were, they were set apart to God. There's a holiness, a setting apart that is involved in being a priest in Israel. And I think that's much, for a much greater reason, true for us, for the believer priesthood of every Christian. See, this is where it's different. We're not setting apart one special clergy that will be set apart, and now we're the holy priests. That's why Luther's so emphatic about the believer priesthood, because he's railing against other tradition. What we're seeing in the scriptures here is that in Christ, we are all set apart to God. And if you're a believer in Jesus, we're told, for example, in um, in Romans 4, 5 and 6, that you are set apart to God. You are in Christ. You are sanctified. That, that's another word for holy or set apart, sanctified. It's uh, an uncomfortable yoke in the culture in which we live, but it was that way in Paul's day. It's, it's, it's in everyone's day. If you are of the world, if you love the things of the world, then the being set apart from the world is uncomfortable. And uh, the kids are learning to make that choice. Some of you are learning and making your choice right now. Will I say of the world or set apart? But that's what part of being a believer priest means is that you're set apart to God. But it's not in rejection of the world. It's so that you can serve the world for God's sake. The Levites were not set apart from Israel because of rejection of Israel. They were set apart from Israel because they were supposed to serve Israel on God's behalf. You, in verse 22, or 23, as we'll see, are set apart to God so that you can serve the world. Let's, let's go back to verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Very priestly language describing the, the, an analogy from the Levite system. Okay, we did that, by the way. We confessed our sins. We got cleaned up before we started our prayer time and then our studying the word. I think you should do this all the time. The cleansing of the believer priest is a doctrine that has fallen into disrepute in some quarters, but I think it's very, very important. I think, and, and I, I really love the imagery of the Levites before they go do their work of getting gore all over themselves, blood and all the sacrifices, they go wash the world off of themselves. Well, well I don't know how much world I have on me, so I don't really know. No, every time you go to the, do the work, you go wash first. See, I, I don't know what my sins are sometimes. But 1 John 1, 9 says he cleanses me from all unrighteousness. If I confess the sins that I am aware of, he cleans me up. And so I think that this is something that you do whether you're aware of sin or not. You just go to him and start thinking about it. But having our hearts sprinkled clean and our evil con- from, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, now in verse 23, we approach the world. Now before you read verse 23, I want to ask, what do you think will be the writer of Hebrews' sense in which we go as priests to approach the world on God's behalf. What is the nature of our priesthood toward the world? Yeah, it's the message. Now this is the part that is not popular. This is, this is not a popular view, even in Christendom today. Well, because I'll read the Bibles. Aren't we here for an experience? We're here for a feeling. We're here to have a worship you know, event happen. I saw a sign, yeah, the Easter experience. Come experience Easter. 
Um, well, as I read the scriptures, I'm like, yeah, we're supposed to have an experiential walk with God all the time, but it's not these punctuated, big, explosive moments of ecstasy. That's not the biblical portrayal. What we, what we find here is that we have a mission in verse 23 toward the world. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Hold fast the confession of our hope is how the writer of Hebrews says you go to the world. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about in my private spiritual trouble, I'm gonna really trust God. I mean, that's true, but that's not what he's talking about. Holding fast the confession of our hope means you're talking to people. It means that you're, it, it, it doesn't mean I've got a creed and I really believe it. It means that I have a message and I really communicate it. I hold fast the confession of our hope. And this makes you a functioning priest on God's account toward the world. We have been given an incredible privilege of access to God, but it's not just so we can say, look, I got a privilege. The access that God gave us is because he has work for us to do, and it is at times painful. It's a challenge. In fact, it's a sacrifice. And then how we deal with one another in this summary priesthood in verses 24 and 25 let us consider one another under the provocation or to 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 stimulate one another to love and good deeds consider one another your bible probably says let us consider how but i watched the greek pretty close there and it says consider one another so let me just what i say is that there's a verb that's the transitive verb called consider and the object of the verb is one another. And I think that this church needs to hear that. Let us consider one another. For what, though? I noticed what color your shoes were. I noticed that you didn't have your shirt tucked in. I was watching, and I noticed that your kids were a little bit excited over here hitting each other with hymnals before the, 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 the Bible study this morning. We were considering one another. I came and saw, I had a friend, I have a friend that actually told me, he's got a child, a grown child, who is angry to this day at the idea of church because the pastor's wife brought a tape measure and checked to make sure we had a holy length of the skirt with respect to the knee. Just like the Bible says. And this person, they've got their choices and and all that. But this pastor doesn't have a pastor's wife with a tape measure, okay? That's insane. Now, there's a modesty. There's a need for modesty. We have the biblical teaching on this, and and we want to be careful about that. You can check it out in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, and and other places. It's It's a doctrine in the Scriptures. But to say we're going to make arbitrary standards and then turn those into the law that's very pharisaical and it's popular and i and those that practice that could probably give you 15 reasons why that is a holy practice i use my southern holy practice but i i think that it became a distraction now we consider one another under the provocation of love and good deeds and this love is for god it's for others and Here's the question I want to 
I want us to have about this passage. Does your relationship with one another stimulate you to love? I don't just mean one another. I mean, when you see me not responding in a biblically loving sense where I'm not on mission thinking about this person's best and I'm, I'm thinking about myself, do you have a, a, a necessary relationship with me where you can say, you've taught us about love, but I'm not seeing it in this instance Is that the relationship? Because that would be stimulating me to think, change your thinking. Do you have people in your life that are hard to love? Yeah, I know you do. Those of you who are alive, (laughs) you have people who are hard to love. Do you need help loving them? Absolutely. Sometimes you are so blinded in the relationships that you have that you don't know what, where you're dropping the ball with love. And somebody that's not in that crazy pattern with you could come right alongside you watch for five minutes and say well here are the five things that i noticed and that could become provocation stimulation to love in that situation this is very intimate isn't it for us to say that we are to be in each other's life to stimulate christian love but that's a believer priest that's somebody that represents god to those around him That's the one that represents the ones around us to God in prayer. So there's a couple application points you can see right here in the believer's priesthood. You and I should be in each other's life toward the stimulation of love. You should be stimulating each other to love and what that looks like and the consequence in good deeds. Which makes me ask a question. There's a quiz. See, there's a pop quiz. It's a pass or fail question. What is love? What does he mean by stimulation to love? Now, there's two ways this has been answered. The first way to answer the question of what is love is to say everybody knows what it is. It's silly for us to try to define it. We just know when we feel it, and that's it, and just stop it. That's the one, that's the one answer to Christian love is we know. But biblically, I think as I watch the scriptures, we as in the world don't know. We have no idea what God means by love until we let him define it. And I am just crazy enough to say we should let the Bible define what the Bible means by stimulating one one another to love. There is an attack on the concept of love today. And it is this. You ready? Now watch. Watch closely. This is so important. Love means agreement and affirmation of the other person's choices that's love i'm sorry but if you are in an an addiction problem and you feel like i'm going to continue in that direction toward an addiction that would be a choice that if i biblically love you i will not affirm that choice I will not agree with that choice. I will say that will hurt you. What steps can I take to help you choose differently? Not to choose for you, but how can I be in your life to equip you and, and, and encourage you to make a better choice, right? Isn't that love when you're dealing with somebody in that kind of situation? Well, here, I got news for you. You ready? I'm looking at a room full of addicts. <gasps> yeah, you have a sin nature. It's called the flesh. You have this thing in you that makes you want to do things God says not to do. Oh, I don't. I go to church. 
Yours is probably having to do with what you say. The church people love to run off at the mouth. Or it may be, no, I don't do that. I, I have control of my tongue. No, it's just in here. It's your, it's your horrible thoughts that you entertain on a consistent basis. And you love to do that because it feels good. It's your sin nature. It's a problem. We read about it in Romans 7. And you can say, no, I really hate that, but it's a problem. See, everybody's got a problem called the sin nature. And we have these urges, these lusts to disobey God. For you to make a choice that conforms to your sin nature, we call that a sin. And if I love you and I believe sin destroys you, then my desire for your good will say, let's make a different choice. And so see, sloppy thinking, rank and file, just lockstep with the world thinking, takes you out of real love. You can't really love the way the Bible describes So, what do we do? I think love is demonstrated by God in that he sent his son. Love acts, love does what the person needs. The person needs eternal life. The person has a sin nature. They need their sins paid for. God sent his son, and that's his love. For God loved the world this way he gave his only begotten son. Love is action on God's account for the best of the other person. What does God say the other person needs? Unbelievers need eternal life. They need the gospel. Believers need to grow in the word so they can serve him and make something of their lives. I mean, God, make something of their lives and bring glory to him. That's what we need. We need the word in the gospel and we need the word in the teaching so we'll grow and serve. That's it. That's what love looks like and that's what we have here in Hebrews 10.25. Let us consider one another unto the provocation to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The believer priesthood is a summary description of your Christian life in terms of representation, God to man and man to God. You're not a mediator like Jesus, but in Christ, you do have a mediatory work. You take me, whether I know it or not, to the throne of grace and pray for me and intercede on my account. And that is a priestly function. And I benefit from it, but it's for God's sake. You see what I mean? And so this is my prayer for you. Just like Paul says, that the Lord will cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, even as we do toward you in 1 Thessalonians 3. This is, this is what we're talking about in terms of the believer priesthood, that we would stimulate each other to love and good deeds. Now, do you feel a sense? Oh, I can't believe I just said that. Do you feel from reading that a sense of responsibility, of gravity, about this privilege, about this awesome responsibility? I do. I think it's, it's awesome. Now, it sounds like work. It sounds like work. I, I remember um, work is not popular, is it? I, um, I, I refinished gym floors with my dad um, for years. I would take leave from the Army, or, or if I was in Texas in Fort Hood, I would, you know, we'd get a three-day weekend or something. I would go and do a gym floor because he sold the chemicals as a janitorial supply distributor salesman, he could get the chemicals at cost. And guys that did his work would often, on the side, they would refinish gym floors. Now, a gym floor is a horrible thing. Uh, it starts with the removal of, of gum, chewing gum from the floor. And, uh, and it just gets uh, worse from there. But anyway, um, but you, you screen this whole floor with this low-speed orbital buffer using screening pads. And, and uh, Rick's over here saying, please, just don't talk about this anymore. But, but, um, but you go, but you walk around, you walk uh, like you're mowing the grass 
screening this floor. And uh, the way we would do it, usually do three levels of screening, which doesn't get you all the way down to the wood. You're just removing finish to put new finish, usually a couple coats of floor finish. And some of you are like, yeah, the fumes must have got to this guy. And I understand. Uh, the fumes for that floor finish could be, we usually use the high, high uh, solids content uh, floor finish that really harden up good. But anyway, um, I remember, this is a long illustration for a short point, but uh, I remember my dad in his truck, we had all his equipment. We had his low-speed orbital buffer. It was brand new. He was really happy with it. And uh, he's like, someday we'll have paid this off or, or, or have done enough gym floor work to have justified the purchase, but it really made our lives easier. And um, we had all the equipment back there, and it was, we were ready to go, and we, we had to make one little quick trip to Lowe's. And he parked in the parking lot, and we got out, and, and I said, hey, um, do you want me to stay with the stuff? Should I stay with the equipment? It's your brand new buffer. We've been talking about it for the last 15 minutes. He goes, nah. He said, that's work. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody's going to steal that. It might have been that we were in Longview, Texas. I'm not sure. But, um, but he said, that's work. Nobody's interested in that stuff. I was like, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of money and work equipment. Nobody wants that stuff. Bert Roseland is now preaching because nobody wants to do the work that's described here. Nobody wants this, but there's great value here. There's awesome equipment, and you can do awesome work in the description provided here. You've been equipped by the Holy Spirit <clears throat> through the Word of God to do the work of encouraging one another to love and good works. You have that awesome privilege by the command to do it, but nobody really wants to because it's work, because it's hard, because it takes time, because I've got a plan. The, our American lifestyle doesn't really provide for much of this, because it involves interaction with people and they're messy. But this is the privilege of the believer priesthood. As I close, I want to talk about the summary work that priests do, and we just described it. He didn't call it a sacrifice, but it is one in chapter 10. Let's talk about this where it's explicitly called sacrifice, because the other thing that the Hebrew would think of when you talk about priesthood, he would, he would think of the guys with the knives. He would think of the men who are responsible for the sacrifices. And a sacrifice in Israel was not merely a picture of atonement. It wasn't just the atonement that there was a death for sin, a shedding of blood. There was that. But there was something else. You had to bring your bull. Well, that's my bull. I was going to use that. Well, this is a sacrifice. You bring your aunt. Well, if the poor can't afford, then they go purchase what they can. At, you know, and there was a, a, a scaled res responsibility for sacrifices. But a person with land and cattle would have to take some of his herd or some of his flock. There's a sacrifice involved. I'm describing it in terms of this service. But if you look at Hebrews 13. Through Jesus, in verse 15, through Christ, let us continually offer, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. The believer priest in this age, with the awesome priesthood we have, part of our sacrificial work is our praise to God. Well, that's easy. It's easy to go praise God. 
Some people are very nonchalant and casual about it. I notice there's no such thing as chalant. There's only nonchalant. Actually, George Carlin noticed that. The, the, the constant sacrifice of praise. I want you to notice that if you're constantly praising God, I mean sincerely that you're really grateful to him, then you're on the, at least constantly aware of him. If you're constantly aware of him, then you're aware of his righteousness, of his character, his holiness, of the call on your life. That means a withholding of self from lots of things you might involve yourself in. There's a sacrifice. I'm not going to engage in this because it would stop me from legitimately praising God. There's a setting apart in my experience from this constant sacrifice of praise. Meditate on that a little bit, what it means to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Do not neglect the doing of good and sharing. This is to people. We're praising God. See, I told you, it's God and then man. God and then for God's sake, what I do with man. And then verse 16, do not neglect the doing good and sharing for with such what? Sacrifices. Three of you are in the Bible. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. My work on God's account for you ends up being considered a sacrifice. Paul in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your logical response, service of worship. The whole self, I'm a sacrifice to God. It's pretty metaphoric, the description of the believer priesthood. It's your whole Christian life. It's your service to God. It's your service to one another. That's what we're talking about. And I'm thankful that in running down the language used in the scriptures on this doctrine of the priesthood, I've had to talk about love. If you reinforce my self-destructive tendencies, you have not loved me as God has loved me. But if you're part of his work on my account of bringing me to him, then you have loved me as God loves me. Please, believers, don't be taken hostage by what the world does with the concept of love. But I feel like it is not an argument for love but I feel like it is usually a description of lust. And I'm not talking about legitimate appetites. We have legitimate appetites. We, need, we want food, we eat. God made us that way. We have, we have sexual craving. God gave us this. It's part of our, made, our design. It's part of the blessing of this life, but there's always a right way to experience the fulfillment of God-given appetite. And that's the question. Who do you serve? Self, the world, or the creator of yourself, the creator of the world. Let's pray. Father, we've noticed in the description of the priesthood of the believer, the responsibility to serve. And it's my prayer for everyone present that we might take these words to heart. We might consider what it looks like to serve you on your terms from what you've said in your word. Father, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. I pray for everyone here that we will be equipped to serve you by your Spirit with joy, to rejoice in the high privilege of serving you, to rejoice in the calling to help others, to proclaim Christ, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering.
Father, to consider one another, to stir each other up to love and good works. Let us be good believer priests about your business, steadily working in these sacrifices that we bring, which ultimately are our very selves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.